Welcome back to the Ideas Podcast. I am Daniel Lazar, the founder and faculty advisor to JFKS Ideas, and this is the second of a two-part discussion about academic anxiety. Before we get started, I want to once again thank Dr. Joseph Curtis for his generous contribution to our project. He made a donation over at buymeacoffee.com slash ideas. And if you like this discussion and if you support the mission of ideas, there's a couple of things we want to buy and we would be very grateful for your support. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash ideas. The link to that is in the show notes. I might add here that if you did not listen to the previous discussion that we had about academic anxiety, we would recommend that you do so, though it's not necessarily a prerequisite to understanding and enjoying this conversation. But in case you didn't listen to that one, and you're not going to, allow me to introduce my guests once again. First of all, to my left, Josie Reamer, 11th grader at JFK. Hey, Josie. Hey. And to her left though not necessarily politically, but probably, maybe, maybe not. We're not going to talk about that. Ophelia, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. A ninth grader and the president of the JFK Student Council, the American president, James Simonowitz. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey. The alumna, wonderful guy, Jacob Jakob. Jacob Jakob. Didn't we used to call you Snakeup for no particular reason? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Welcome back, Snakeup. Thanks, good to be back. And Moss Fernandez Moss, welcome back. Hello. So if it's okay with you, Ophelia, I want to pick up right where you left off and this note of empathy, but also kind of like the problematics of grades and the intersection of grades and anxiety. And I want to pose this question to, to all of you, though, Ophelia, since you brought it up, you know, you're welcome to respond first to it. I want to challenge you all to support, modify, or refute the following claim. Here it is. The pursuit of excellence at the Kennedy School is is stressful, maybe even anxiety-inducing. But the pursuit of threes is not so stressful at all. In other words, one can choose to go to the Kennedy School get a world-class education, have a lot of teachers that care about them, be part of a splendid student body, get average grades, and not endure some of the emotional duress that the pursuit of ones and twos tends to engender. But by contrast, if you want to go to I don't, I don't know. I'm never comfortable saying it, but like, you know, one of the best schools around, a highly reputed school, a very challenging school, a school with a reputation for being challenging, a school where you get, frankly, a world-class education. If you want to go to that school and you want ones and twos, and you want to be part of MUN, and you want to be part of Ideas, and you want to play the violin, and you want to play a sport, and you want to have a social life, and you want to have a family life, that might induce some anxiety. So let's deal with the first part of that first. To what degree is it true indeed that the anxiety that we're discussing here is largely a manifestation of students really trying to 
achieve the best possible grades at one of the best schools? Ophelia. Well, I think that, yes, for me, it seems intuitive to say if I, you know, accept somewhat lower grades that I also have less stress or put less stress on myself. But I think, although in theory that makes sense, there's no way to really implement that because first of all, if you at a certain age, it could be sixth grade, it could be ninth grade, whatever, have a certain standard, you're not going to drop that just because you say, oh, it's less stress for me. I don't know a student that does that on purpose. And um, even though in theory it might end up working out for you in terms of career, future, and of course mental health, no one goes into school knowing all of that. No one goes into school with any school experience, obviously. So when you tell a seventh grader, oh, you just got into the middle school slash high school, um, how about you just take it easy? Of course not, because it's also been imposed on us or we've been taught that that good grades and um, high GPA and maybe also extra cur- extracurriculars is what's going to make us successful in life. We do not at all have enough um, experience to say that grades don't matter or anything because in the end, that's just not true. I kind of wanted to add on to what Ophelia was saying. I think even if you do accept this um, the standard of getting threes or receiving average grades at our school... I think that's when the teachers and parents really do come in and I think to take like a very empathic view of it they want you to succeed and they if you yourself aren't pushing to get ones and twos or to achieve good grades at our school I think that's where the parents and teachers really push you and that's where another form of academic anxiety will come in so I really think that it isn't less stressful to pursue threes at JFK I think it's just a different form of stress coming from a different place. Jacob. I, I have a couple things to say about that, but to sort of keep it a little bit brief, um, I'm going to do some generalizing here. Um, I'm going to qualify it by inventing some numbers. So I'm going to say for 90% of students, I think it's possible uh, in combination with 90% of teachers to get grades in the three realm with very minimal effort. So you go to class, you raise your hand twice a day, you do all your homework or most of your homework, maybe study an hour for exams, you'll be fine. That's my experience for 90% of teachers with 90% of students. I think extenuating circumstances are exactly those extenuating. Um, so in that sense, I think it's it's sort of easy. Um, on the other hand, I think that's the difficulty with that comes in the mindset because now we have to think of a student who's motivated enough to put in a little, that little bit of work but not ambitious enough to go beyond. And I think that's actually a much smaller part of students than we would expect. I just don't think that's how psychologically we're wired Maybe that's because of our environment, but I think I, I commend students who are able to achieve, you know, threes and maybe twos uh, and be fully satisfied with that while only putting in a little bit of the work. I think it's very rare. Ophelia. I think as long as there is room to improve, we're not satisfied. And I, I know I don't speak for all, the whole student body. That's impossible. And everyone has a different take on it. And um, of course, if, you know, improving means you go from a four to a three that's also an improvement you should be proud of and that's an improvement some people are proud of whereas other people are um you know don't really care or there you know people have a different opinion on their grades and on different people's grades and etc etc but i think as long as there is room to improve and this ties into what josie said as well 
someone, whether it's you, whether it's subconsciously your classmates, whether it's your teachers, whether it's your parents, someone is going to be like, oh, why don't you go even further? It's not about this immense pressure where we're thinking, oh, yeah, if I get a three, my parents will hate me and stuff. That's not necessarily the case. But, you know, you get a three, your parents are like, oh, that's satisfying. That's good. But let's shoot for a two next. And you like that may on one hand be, you know, constructive motivation in that sense. But again, it makes it impossible for people to be content with a grade lower than perfection. Um, Our school, I think, fosters an environment where you are expected to go to your highest level, even if it harms you. And some people, I think most people, they, if they stopped when they actually felt tired, they would be getting twos and threes, which are not bad grades. But because of the pressure around them, they're expected to because they could get higher grades, but then it harms them either in sleep or just extra stress and anxiety and things like that. I don't know. Maybe we're just not taught at a young age to set boundaries for ourselves in that way. Like, yes, you can get a one plus on this if you study for too long, but like you shouldn't really for your health. James. I think that part of what Moss was speaking to as well is that we have a disconnect between what these grades, what we think they mean and what they actually mean. If we take them at how they're su- at what they're supposed to mean, at least according to the German government, you should not just by, you know, giving your best and putting in good effort be able to get ones in classes where you don't have a talent. If stuff worked the way it was supposed to, I wouldn't be getting uh, I wouldn't be able to get a one in chemistry. No talent for chemistry. But I think students expect that. They expect I show up, I do everything right, I check all the boxes, I study, I participate a lot, I do all the homework, I'll I'll even do some extra credit, I deserve a one in that class. And it works most of the time because for most teachers at least in the Mittelstufe that is what it takes to get a one. But I think that's not what it's supposed to mean according to the German government. And we have a lot of teachers who still obey that. And we still have a lot of students who want to be a one in everything. And if we take a one to mean talent, pretty much no one should be getting a one in everything. Jacob. Yeah, I fully agree with that point. I think that sort of hits the nail perfectly on the head. Because, yeah, like you said, it's almost not necessarily normal to get ones in everything. That's sort of a not how the system was designed. I want to bring in another example about this specifically aimed at the diploma program where um, at our school, and I, I know this now having compared my AP experience with students from the U.S. that I met in, uh, in my studies, um, you know, at our school, it's very normal for a student to take between four and six APs a year in the diploma program, which is insane. It's an insane workload. And then also to get ones in all of those classes, yeah. very harsh. Um, I don't. I think that ambition is good. I'm a, I'm a big believer in shooting high and, and and competition and all that. But I fully want to sort of underline James's point of like this is not how these systems were designed. One thing that I feel obliged to add here is this sort of idiosyncratic part of the Kennedy School, where 
for ninth and 10th grade students in the Apitur program, their grades don't count. Whereas for diploma students, grades nine through 12 count towards their GPA. And that creates for a certain stress for students who are inclined to be in the diploma program in grades nine and 12, where their grades really do matter but they're not necessarily being graded in a way commensurate with that. And I think that that could be anxiety-inducing, stress-inducing, and um, part of a larger conversation that hopefully one day we could have here on the Ideas podcast. There's this other side to this that I kind of embedded in the question that I was hoping I could get someone to speak to. You are all right. Yeah, one means excellent and the pursuit of excellence in every subject might be a fool's errand, except for, you know, one or two or 5% of the student body. But that is the pursuit. Students are trying to get ones, you know, maybe a couple twos. Everybody's trying to be above average. If three is average and everyone's trying to be above average, that creates for some, you know, very clear problems. But there's this other side to it, which I spoke to briefly, and I'd love to get some opinions on it. It's not just trying to get ones and twos and the occasional unfortunate three. It's also trying to do that while pursuing a robust social life, while being part of some of the wonderful extracurricular programs that the Kennedy School offers while playing the violin, while playing sports two or three nights a week, while having a healthy family life, while traveling on every vacation. Like if you're trying to do it all, it's going to be a little bit stressful. Now, I know what that sounds like. <laughs> and I, I'm teeing up the question exactly that way so that you can push back. I'm not saying that this is necessarily my belief. It's an honest question, but that does seem to be part of the problem, right? We have at the Kennedy School the, dare I say, privilege to have it all. And a lot of students at the Kennedy School, including maybe everybody at this table, to their credit, maybe, they're pushing real hard to have it all, to thrive in a vast expanse of different endeavors, and it's taking a toll on their mental health. Again, I position myself in this conversation as, as raising, you know, I don't want to sound insensitive, but I'm trying to raise some difficult dialogue, help me out here support, modify, refute, push back, push back hard if you want to. I'm not sure if I believe what's behind this question, but I think it's worth talking about. Who's going to get us started? Moss. Um, I think the conversation really comes back to expectations um, and how a lot of people choose to, um, which is their choice, to put their goals and striving for those goals above their own health well mental health and peace of mind i'm going to say josie i just wanted to make a point i've been like relatively focused on this um on like teachers i don't want to shift the blame completely away from the students because i believe that um participating in this many activities is a choice and um one can choose not to do that but i think that sometimes teachers whether it be in extracurriculars or not i've seen it especially in extracurriculars though um, can be somewhat 
blind somehow to other things that students are involved in. And although I understand that in order to be involved in certain activities, there's a lot of time commitment and other things involved, I think sometimes teachers push harder than maybe they should in certain extracurriculars because, I mean, I understand the view behind it. They want you to do well. They want you to participate more. They want you to grow as a student, as a person. But sometimes it can be a lot, especially when you're doing multiple activities. And I think I think sometimes teachers don't take that into account. You're referring to the teachers who are sponsors for different extracurricular activities. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are <laughs> on a Saturday during Christmas break voluntarily having this discussion so sword sharpened sword fallen on james i think that i don't, I don't want to come back to university too much but i think because these extracurriculars they have virtue onto themselves you're learning valuable skills but you can you can really grow as a person and be a really great well-rounded person without going to these extreme lengths that people go to. And so I think the reason people go for this, you know, this, this pie in the sky of doing it all is that when these highly ambitious students look at these universities and they see I'm competing with students from all over the globe, tens of thousands of students, and there's, there's such a small number of spots we're competing for. And I think this, this can be understood as a false mentality to a certain extent. It's not a one in a hundred. It's a one in a thousand or a one in 5,000 who's going to get a perfect GPA, great test scores, and have all of these extracurriculars that they're doing. And they're going to do it without it having this really negative effect on them. And kids know they're in competition with that. And I think at some point, speaking personally, it's hard to accept maybe we aren't that. Maybe you're, you're a smart kid, but you aren't the kid who can, who can do that doesn't make you a worse person, doesn't mean you're going to be less successful or happy as an adult. But I think that's a really hard reality to come to terms with for a lot of people. Ophelia? I wanted to bring up a point that I think is not just true for JFK, but more of a generational thing, something with teenagers amongst each other, all of that, is this fear of missing out. And I think if you think about taking like a break because of your mental health, what does that actually entail for, let's say, the average, maybe slightly above average um, student, if that makes sense? So missing out on school for a lot of people seems like impossible, either because their parents wouldn't excuse them for a mental health break or because they themselves are afraid of what they might be missing out in class. That's one point. Missing out on an extracurricular such as like some sort of political thing, maybe MUN ideas, something like that. Missing out on that sucks because you have friends there, you want to contribute. Maybe it's an interesting debate, an interesting topic, something special that week, or you just really want to go. So you don't want to miss out on that. Sport, you don't want to miss out on because it's a good outlet and generally does contribute to your mental well-being. So you think, no, I want to go to that. Then you're invited to a party or a friend's house or whatever on Friday night and you're like, this is a one-time thing or, you know, this doesn't happen often. I don't have time for this often. I want to go. All of my friends are going or the whole grade is going or whatever. I don't want to miss out. And 
that's one week but honestly that happens every week or yeah. more often than not yeah i'm really interested in the fomo problem and generally speaking but also as it pertains to academic anxiety and i'm so grateful to be a teacher at a school where students they don't want to miss out they do want to lean into all of these opportunities and they want to have full rich lives and a breadth of experience it makes the school a better place but as is clear from the data we discussed it's taking its toll on a not insubstantial proportion of our community i want to lean into one more kind of tough question that again might read as victim blaming but it's just a kind of part of the conversation i'm trying to engender here so I wonder if it's even possible for students to not feel overwhelming anxiety when they have their classes and their sports and their music and their theater and their family and their social life. And then in their so-called free moments, when they actually do have time to decompress and to chill and to regroup, the overwhelming majority of students seize that free moment to pull out their phones and take as many dopamine hits as time allows for instead of sort of mentally and emotionally regrouping. So what I'm saying here, and again, like I understand how powerful the algorithm is, and I know that the incentive behind these social media companies is not your mental health at all. But where you should be and could possibly be getting some downtime, some chill time, some recovery time, you bust out that beautiful machine in your pocket and your brain simply can't recover when you're watching someone have a great time <laughs> on Instagram or TikTok. To what degree do you think that's part of the problem? And if you think it has nothing to do with the problem, then you just point your finger and say, Lazar, you're misguided old man. You don't get it. I'm okay with that. I know I'm old and I know I don't always get it. Josie? I think that it's definitely part of the problem. And I think one really interesting part, I think it's kind of a generational thing, is the way that social media has been kind of framed I think a lot of people, I know from my friends, even for myself, we see it kind of as a form of relaxation. Like you said, it's where we should be having downtime and just kind of relaxing. We're using TikTok, we're using Instagram. And it's the fact that the whole, or I've seen a lot of people in my generation um, use TikTok as a way to like decompress, which it obviously isn't, but just like the way that people think that it is helping them relax, it's helping them calm down is part of the issue. Moss? Um, I'd like to add to that um, and, of course, acknowledge that it is part of an issue and it certainly does not help with anxiety, I do not think. But just to kind of not make an excuse but maybe um, have a bit of an explanation for why kids are so fast to turn to their phones for comfort or to decompress is... I think it's a form of escapism. Like they don't, like when their whole life is stressful and full of anxiety, they want to just get lost in someone else's day or what other people are doing on Instagram or TikTok or whatnot. Um, and also I still think it's a side effect, maybe is the right word, of 
lockdown and the pandemic, how for so many people, their social media um, or just their phone or their computer was kind of an anchor for, for like their social life and just for getting out of the room. It was like the only way to interact with other people or interact with the outside world. And I think that still has a lasting impact in how people connect it to comfort and being able to get away from like the stressors of your like you like your quote-unquote like real life yeah you know i saw something on pinterest the other day sort of speak <laughs> of the devil um <laughs> and uh what it it was it was sort of, it's, it's like a diagram it's like what people think of as the 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 paradox of being a student is you have to it's it's a triangle you have to pick two and you have sleep social life school right and then what it actually is is a shape with so many sides i don't know the name of it because geometry isn't my strong suit and it's like all the things you brought up you know hobbies extracurriculars friends family academics sleep um etc what it is actually is you try and do it all and then you end up doing none of it you you're so stressed and then you sort of just crash and burn and end up doing none of these things and just scrolling on social media yeah and I think this is sort of, this is what it is, is that instead of having this sort of up and down, we just keep going and we, we, we keep loading ourselves up and not really taking much of a break. And then for some people, they just crash at some point. And I know I, this has happened to me, like with like physical well-being, where like, just like week after week, I'll, I'll sort of be at it. And then at some point I'll just like, I'll, my body will just get sick and then I'll, I'll miss out on a week. And so it's sort of this, the real danger, I think that, um, not having this relaxation poses is this crash and burn effect. Ophelia. To answer your question of if phones contribute to the problem bluntly, yes, (laughs) yes, they do. But we have to look at it realistically. What are the alternatives, right? So you get home from school, get home from a long day, maybe had something after school as well, you know, that's how the JFK life goes. And then these are your options. You can take a walk. Probably don't have the energy for that, honestly. Maybe you even came back from some sort of, like I don't know, basketball tournament. You don't have the energy for that. So you can play with your pet. If you don't have one, then you can't. If you do, sure, that'll entertain you for like half an hour and that's cute and that's helpful and it's been proven that that can actually really help people who struggle with actual mental illnesses and I encourage it but alternatives you can read a book maybe you just had to finish the third Shakespeare play in English class and you're out of it and you don't want to read a book so that's a no you can watch a movie with your mom maybe you don't have the time to watch a two and a half hour movie maybe your mom doesn't want to and maybe you don't want to right So then you're like, okay, I'll hang out with friends. No one has time. It's a Monday. Who's going to hang out with friends that day? So you text them and you're back on the cycle of being on your phone. And if you're texting your friends, you might as well check out what (laughs) Kylie Jenner is doing. And it's just, (laughs) it's just, obviously this isn't true for everyone. And some people have an outlet, but if you're completely drained from energy, it's very easy and seems at first relaxing to just take your phone. Right, right. I totally understand. Thank you for framing it exactly like that, Ophelia. So I have kind of an adjacent question here. Um, 
I guess I kind of wonder like how it's even possible to disentangle the anxiety that's a manifestation of our screen lives from eco-anxiety, from social anxiety, perhaps Moss, you know, pandemic-generated social anxiety or sort of like the hangover from the pandemic and the social anxieties that came from that, from, you know, anxiety about war on the continent to, well, academic anxiety. I guess what I'm getting to in this question is I find that students blame their stresses and their anxieties on school in the same way that teachers blame their anxieties and stresses on work because that seems like the one that's maybe most under our control. But there's this whole host of other anxieties that I mentioned, again, eco-anxiety and, and anxieties about war and just social anxieties. And I guess I'm trying to wonder how we can begin to think about how we can disentangle our academic anxieties from other anxieties that are just part and parcel of living in the 20s. Incidentally, it could be that there's no good answer to this question, but I would just love to hear young, clever people like yourselves talk through this problem. James, help me out here. The first thing that sort of came to mind is we're on vacation right now. You can compare that. I think most of us are relatively detached from school, maybe not from extracurriculars, at least not at the moment. Um, but yeah, no, but certainly like vacation, I'd say most people aren't doing a ton for school. It is to a certain extent a break. Mm -hmm. And then that's sort of the easiest, the easiest way to judge is to see, do I feel anxious right now? How does my anxiety right now compare to that, uh, that I was feeling during school? And I think then you can sort of see based off of the differential, if it really is due to that, because the other factors are consistent. We're still in a social environment. There's still war going on. Climate change isn't on break, even if we are. So that would be my first thought. So let's look around the table real quick. Um, how y'all feeling? You pretty chill? Are you discernibly less anxious than you were a week or two ago? <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. From the people mm. at this table, you, Moss, like you say, are. I would like to say something. I think a little bit less. Maybe. Okay. I do still have schoolwork to do over the break, so it's a bit harder to separate it because I know I have to get that done before school begins again. But at least over the Christmas days when I knew, like, my parents would not allow me to do schoolwork, I knew I could totally not worry about that. Yeah. And I felt much more calm than I usually do. And I will admit when you... Um, started setting up the meeting my stress started going up a bit just because it was oh, school no. <laughs> just because it's school related I triggered it I just because it's school it. so related um, but yeah I think at least a bit my stress levels have gone down can I say something about you in particular 
you are so cool. You know, really, you are. I've taught Moss for four years. It's been such a privilege to teach them. And I'm just so grateful for everything you've contributed to my classes over the years. And I wouldn't know for a second that you're academically anxious. You wear it so well, which is um, probably a liability and an asset, perhaps in equal parts. I'm sorry to have <laughs> triggered your anxiety it's during okay. the break. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, so I mean, look. I looked around the table. Nobody seems that much less anxious, even though we're on break. And maybe it's because you're here, and I'm, you know, pressing at all your anxieties with a discussion about anxiety. I have like a totally adjacent question. Is it possible that the academic arena induces anxiety merely because you're surrounded by people all of the time? Like that this that school, it's an institution and you're being institutionalized and you're stuck in a classroom with 20 people, some of whom you like, some of whom you don't, some of whom bullied you when you're in third grade, one of whom is your ex-partner and like you just got stuck in the same class together. Like there's like all of this like very real like family life at the Kennedy School and just the fact that we're there and we're stuck in the classroom how much of it is just that that it's like low grade social anxiety manifested from the mere fact that we're all stuck there together it's like being in an airport you know, and you sort of feel everyone else's angst, whether they're coming and go, coming or going, like, or somehow caught in mid-transit, you kind of feel that like palpable sense of frustration and anxiety at airports. I feel that schools are just like that. Like, I totally feel the anxiousness of 750 teenagers in a not-so-big building. Right. Prisons are less crowded, by the way, just putting it out there, like truly. I don't know if there's a question there, but has anyone thought about that? <laughs> uh, school views of you prison? No, that's not the Jacob. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think um, it's less about the people um, being people. I think it's about the anxiety. And I think you if one person is anxious in a room, you can tell. And I want to bring in an example from my university from this because I saw this on a larger scale. And I want to sort of compare that to uh, the um, John F. Kennedy School, which is a smaller scale. Uh, at my university, the policy for a lot of the exams is that the entire university does their exam at the same time in the same big room. It's over 2,000 students in yeah. one gigantic room. Yeah. When I tell you, you can feel the pressure, even if it's an easy exam. Like I've gone into exams there knowing I would ace it. But uh, yeah, you feel it. And I'm thinking that that applies on a smaller scale to the Kennedy, the hallways of the Kennedy School. Not even just during exam time. Everyone's always stressed about something, which is normal. That's, that's you know, kind of human. But uh, you you feel it. Like you, yes. I think that that your point is very salient there, James. Um, I think that the collective anxiety. There may be something to say there. I find that often it can be sort of nice to just like. If you're not having a great day, you know, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you know, you have a long day. Often the time before school and the time after school isn't that nice. 
but there is something that's sort of relaxing because you are you are in a social situation and that does mean like on the one hand yes you're in a social situation that's the downside you have to deal with people and people's perceptions of you but at the same time it means you know you can in the seven minute break go talk to your friends yeah you're in community yeah, yeah. you're you're in community and you're you're even if it isn't like, even if it isn't most of the time, you're hanging out with your friends yeah, in smaller or bigger uh, chunks of time. And so I found that school itself, like the actual school day, eight to three, can actually be somewhat relaxing. What we're talking about is empathy. And for the listeners who don't know, IDEAS is an acronym for identity, diversity, empathy, awareness, and service. So I'm glad that we're talking about this empathically. And with that spirit in mind, I feel really compelled to say that I'm having this conversation with five students who do exceedingly well at school. You are all, dare I say, model students. And I can't help but wonder what this anxiety is like for students at the Kennedy School who have to work four times as hard as you all do just to pull threes just to stay at the Kennedy School. And so, you know, shout out to all of them, bearing all of them in mind, like that adds a layer of nuance to the to the problem, because I'm talking to kids about academic anxiety, who you all have very real anxieties. I'm not trying to create some sort of like a, you know, a race to the bottom on, on, on that. I just do want to note that the sample here, again, is of students who are super high performers. All right, with that said, and perhaps having nothing to do with that at all, Ophelia. Right, so unfortunately, I don't have much to say about that point because, like you said, we don't, we're a specific um, set of students and we don't have the experience to be able to speak for people who have a different, you know, school experience. Yeah. Um, if there's a day where, like James said, I wake up on the wrong side of the bed or I know something's going to be difficult or I'm just really not having a good day, sometimes... Um, although it may sound appealing to stay at home or it may sound, you know, nice to just have a relaxing day. Sometimes I don't think that it would improve my mental health to just stay in and be by myself. Sometimes even complaining about a class together joins you. <laughs> and um, it it's nice to have that because regardless of if I have my best friends in a class, I always seem to um, be able to find a sense of community. And I really appreciate that commiseration and community yeah moss um i'd like to expand on that and also well maybe more connected to something we talked about in i think it was mostly part one about how um your friends can also further your academic anxiety how this community um is kind of like a double-edged sword because you can find comfort in the people around you also experiencing this anxiety and like you said the complaining about a class um but then also you can be feeding into the cycle of furthering other people's and your own academic anxiety yeah yeah so i've i've gotten so much perspective from this two-part conversation i want to tee you all up as we begin to drive this train into the station you know ophelia you at the end of the last episode kind of geared us towards this and i didn't quite take the bait i wanted to save it for now i, I want to talk a little bit about solutions. Like, as you've pointed out, it's 
complex. It's nuanced. There's levels to this whole thing. What's our path forward? What can you do as individuals? What can you advise me to do as a teacher? What would you like to say to your classmates about how to navigate these anxieties in our community? Moss? Um, I'd like to say two things um, towards solutions. One is a mental shift that I think the student body needs to take. Um, James mentioned it earlier, how we will have high expectations for ourselves, and sometimes it is a hard conclusion to come to that you will not meet those expectations, either the ones that other people have placed on you or that you have placed on yourself. And it is okay. You don't have to be perfect. A saying my dad says that is kind of maybe a little cheesy. I don't know if it's cheesy, but it's, I think it rings true, is that do not let the perfect get in the way of the good. Like, I think if you are putting a lot of effort into something and you're not harming yourself in doing so, and then you get an outcome, I think that outcome is still good, even if it is not to the expectation or to the level that you want it, that you wanted it to be originally. The second thing I'd like to say is more geared toward teachers and parents and how they can speak to their children or students about their performance. Like um, what Ophelia also mentioned earlier is how if you have made a big improvement in yourself, but they still expect more, that can take away from your accomplishment. Um, And I've heard stories from friends and from my siblings also of teachers literally shaming children (laughs) if they do not do well in their class or comparing children to other kids in their class, which of course is not okay in any situation, but I think that definitely needs to change. <laughs> like that's like the base level. Like that yeah. is the bar is on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't <laughs> shame your students or children <laughs> and don't compare them to other people because that does not help anyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. James. I'd absolutely second everything Moss said. Um, I'd also sort of had two things. The first thing that I really sort of take issue with is I think our generation has an endless self-actualization mindset. We pay so much attention, put so much effort, and I'm not just talking about the kids who are good at school. I think this is true for everyone. In trying to max out our stats, trying to become as smart as, you know, as good-looking, well-dressed, fit, all of these things, this idea that the best thing you can do with your life is try and become like this really amazing individual who who looks amazing who feels amazing who does amazing things and we pay so much attention to being you know a successful person and we pay so little attention to being a good person you know i think at the end of the day someone who is incredibly physically fit, gets straight ones, is loved by everyone, but is kind of an ass, contributes a lot less to our community and to our society than someone who failed their test today, who is bottom of their sport class, but who's a genuinely nice person, who's kind to people, and who when you see them, you say, hey, I'm actually glad I come to school because I get to talk to people like you. I think that's the first thing. 
it's more important to be a good person than to be a successful person. James, you gave me goosebumps. <laughs> Thank, no, really, you did. Thank you so much for that. It means the world to everyone at the table. Ophelia, thinking about solutions. Um, I just wanted to respond to what James said because I think it's a very important point. Um, but I think that it actually raises an issue, um, which is that although this is true in theory, as that individual that's not doing well, that's not, you know, fitting into any beauty standards that's being whispered about, as that individual, I would personally believe that, you know, you do anything to rise up in any way, whether that means pushing yourself to the limits to have academic success, whether that means um, doing crazy exercises and diets to, you know, rise the ranks in your sport class, whether that means even falling into maybe the wrong friend groups to gain some popularity. It's not true for everyone, but I think that although I would appreciate people being good people, at the end of the day, people want to be successful. And I'm not saying everyone's heartless and would do anything for that, but it's hard to expect people to be a good person and be just content with that if they're not successful. Right on. Josie. I was going to add kind of to what Moss said about the mindset shift. I think a lot of the root of academic anxiety is this kind of competition that I think we've kind of, we've talked about it a little bit from what James said about like going to a competitive university or um, like comparing your grades to other people as soon as you get out of the classroom. And I think it's really important that um, whether it be students, teachers, or parents, that you kind of work to shift this mindset from uh, how did you do in comparison to this other person looking at like a Klassenspiegel and being sad that there's three kids that got a one when you got a two. Um, and instead to, I mean, much easier said than done, obviously, but to to how much improvement you've made and how far you've come, because I think that's something that teachers can definitely reinforce, because I think that's much more important and it's much more of a sign of growth than just getting straight ones all the time. Cool. So as we begin to drive this train into the station, tell me, what would you find folks at this table want our community to know more about academic anxiety at the Kennedy School? Moss? Um, I'd just like to bring um, maybe a bit more of a scientific view on it, I think, or um, in terms of brain development, that in school people, their brains are still developing fully, and just as a teenager going through puberty, our self-confidence um, and worth is essentially in, like inherently lowered, so we will attach our, our self-worth to something, and a lot of people attach it to school, and that is understandable, but your school grades do not define who you are and they do not define your worth. And it is understandable how in such a high output school, so many children place so much of their worth on their grades. But at the end of the day, your worth is not, I just want to say like your worth is not defined by your school grades. And it just sucks that in this stage of development, a lot of us hang all of our worth onto like a, a number on like a piece of paper. Thank you, Moss. Jacob. Yeah, I agree fully with uh, what Moss said and I want to sort of emphasize um, it from a different angle um, and say I think competition in academia is very good in many ways. Um, I think it fuels you to become uh, better at what you're doing and it fuels your passions as long as we're clear on what the stakes are. And I think that's where what Moss said comes into play because I think most people overestimate the stakes. 
people need to have a clear head about the consequences of not winning the competition at a school and how they aren't dire in many ways. You can have a very successful life with twos. You can have a very successful life with threes. You can drop out of school in 10th grade and have a very successful life. It does matter. Yes, academics matters. Grades matters. Um, but we have to be very keep a good perspective on what the actual stakes are and not overblow the importance of school and attach our entire self-worth to it, like Moss said. Right. I love this, right? Don't don't attach too much ego to the numbers. James, as James said, you know, be a good person. Mm-hmm. Jacob, understand that, yeah, there's competition to some degree. It's healthy, but you, the stakes are not exactly clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The stakes of not being a good person mm-hmm. are a little more clear. James, I can't tell you how important it was to me that you said that. I feel so edified by this conversation. I'm so grateful for what you all brought to it. So grateful indeed that I want to give you all an opportunity to recommend to our audience something that speaks to the idea's mission. This could be anything, anything at all. It's just uh, an old tradition that I'm bringing back to the ideas podcast. Um, maybe, maybe you could recommend to our listening audience something that helps you to feel a little less anxious, maybe a little more alive. And we will link to all of your recommendations on the homepage, on the show notes to this episode. So let's just go around the table here. Maybe we'll start with James. Let's start with you. What do you recommend? Uh, one thing that really helps me is actually a podcast um, in our time, uh, Philosophy from the BBC Melvin 4. Melvin Bragg. Yeah, Melvin Bragg. I love Melvin Bragg. We all love Melvin Bragg. I and will, the podcast yeah. is good too. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'd really recommend you check it out. I will link to In Our Time, BBC 4 with Melvin Bragg. Thank you, James. James, you are such a middle-aged man. Jacob. <laughs> I also have a podcast recommendation. Um, I would recommend the Lex Friedman podcast. Um, if you're interested in empathizing with people you hate, I think that's the perfect avenue <laughs> to do it. If you ever feel like feeling bad for Elon Musk or any of those characters, I think uh, that podcast, while controversial, provides a really nice space to sort of empathize with other people and have honest conversations. Lex Friedman, a little, little surprise from Jacob, was not <laughs> expecting that. Moss? Mm, I'm afraid I don't have something that you can actually link, but I just want to ensure the audience, um, well, I just want to ensure that the audience knows um, that it is okay to take a break and that you are allowed to put your schoolwork aside for like an hour at least and just either sit there or read a book or yeah because I think a lot of people struggle with like justifying taking a break they're like oh I could yeah. be studying more I could be studying more yeah but you can you're allowed to take a break and you definitely should all right Moss great idea take a break great <laughs> endorsement Josie uh, I'm also not sure I have something that you can link exactly, but uh, it's a method that has definitely helped me. It's sort of um, an anxiety reducer. It's, I believe it's called the cloud method, if I'm not mistaken. And it's kind of um, thinking of your thoughts as clouds and as things that are just passing by and that aren't permanent. And I think that's so important, especially with what Moss said earlier about not attaching yourself too much to a grade, to just letting your um, slip ups or your bad grades or your mistakes just kind of guide you and letting them pass and not setting too much, um, emphasis on them. So I'm actually going to make an endorsement, even though I wasn't planning on it because Moss, you recommend taking a break, which I think is awesome, but I want to sort of double down on yours. And I want to recommend that while you're taking a break, sometimes 
like take an actual break, which is to say, sit quiet and listen and breathe. And don't pick up a book and don't pick up your phone and don't text your pals. Just take like a proper break, if only for a minute or two. And while I'm being selfish and endorsing, since it came up before, I've been very influenced lately by the work being done by the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, this is Aza Raskin and Tristan Harris, and they are writing and th they are thought leaders in AI and generative technology. They're also uh, leading the way towards creating empathic dialogues about how to fully engage with the ways that our technologies are making it very hard for us to be anything other than anxious. So I'll link to their work in the show notes. Also, one last recommendation, Ophelia. Yeah, I have a show to recommend. Actually, it's on Netflix. It's called I Am Not Okay With This. And it's sort of a sci-fi approach to, in my opinion, accurately depicting sort of coming of age. And I would say it really um, applies to our age group. Um, and yeah, it's really good in sort of taking the stresses of daily life as a teenager and putting a bit of a sci-fi spin on it to make it interesting. Nice. We will link to all of those recommendations in the show notes to this podcast. A two-parter. We did it. What a pleasure. It was such an honor to engage with you all. Thank you for sharing ideas. Listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, as always, you can show your support by going to buymeacoffee.com slash jfksideas. That's linked in the show notes also. Whether or not you choose to support us financially, we are very grateful for your listenership and we look forward to being back with you soon. All right, y'all. Thanks for everything. Bye. Bye. Bye.